Hello again, this is Replacement Level Morality. My name is Joseph. My name is Andrew. Andrew, I know you've you've been in the job market recently, taking a look around at things. I understand you found a new career path for yourself. That's true. Uh, I am going to... I'm going to try and find my way as a DEI bureaucrat because apparently they get paid the same as what I do now and presumably they work less hard for that amount of money because I can't imagine what they do with all their days. It is it is certainly a growth industry. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you got you got all the job security, right? But what's your take here though? Like the yeah, the stuff's out there and it's just it's a grift. But what 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 do here? Like what's what's the next step? You know, every system ever has had grifters and hangers on. But only capitalism allows the other people to live with as much uh prosperity and relative material comforts as we currently enjoy. Really feel that now with it's so common. I'm sure you see this as much as I do, but for people to get six-figure salaries for doing really very little work. And DEI is just one example of this. Yeah, there's a um, surplus of professional class people, for sure. And there is a desire on the part of even existing professional class people to expand to the degree possible their little cadres and internal empires because it inculcates themselves to the concept that they're not generating very much value for the organization. And eventually you reach a sort of event horizon where suddenly a diversity, equity and inclusion, which I guess we should probably say what DEI is in this podcast that is going to be about it. These diversity, equity, and inclusion programs end up being the sort of apogee of useless, non-value-adding professional enterprise. So during the peak of BLM, you know, I was probably more sympathetic to the protesters to the extent that they were peaceful than you were, insofar as they had a cause for action. Um, there were certainly uh, a lot of unnecessary police attacks on some groups that were not peaceful, or, or that were peaceful. But the question was always, what what do we do? And the question of wokeness in general is okay concede the premise for a second that all of society is systemically racist that we have these structures that are uh, keeping black people poor and keeping white people privileged what next and i don't think i don't think cory d'angelo what's her name robin d'angelo thank you what was i good I don't think Robin D'Angelo had in mind spend thirteen million on DEI consultants, or internal consultants, your own internal bureaucracy. That's just a, a cost center that produces nothing. It's 
it's something of a path of least resistance for organizations with a lot of money to send a costly signal of, hey, we care about this without actually doing anything. You you have, you know, a couple dozen administrators on that list. There's probably a handful of complaints a month. You don't need that many people to actually deal with those. And HR was already equipped to deal with the actual events that happened. It's just, Hey, we care about this thing without actually accomplishing anything. Right. This is, this is charity work for the overeducated and economically useless things. And it can be described in no other way. None of these people are adding to the value of an Ohio state education in any fashion. If anything, they likely serve as a detriment to achieving a good education at that establishment. For example, uh, we just have a recent news article about how a, uh, a Massachusetts um, school district was in the process of hiring a new superintendent. They had chosen who they wanted uh, to be their superintendent, who is someone who was already acting as a superintendent in another jurisdiction, but they were willing to take a pay cut to come to this one because this was where they were a principal years before and their family, like his, you know, his kids went to the schools and all this, you know, like a connection. He wanted to end his career there and he was going to be their choice and he was attempting to negotiate over, you know, hey, I want, if I'm going to take this pay cut of like a few extra sick days or vacation days or something like that uh, to his compensation. And uh, he opened since the 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 two people he was writing were uh, the executive assistant and the head of the hiring committee. Uh, that they're both women. He, he addressed it to ladies. He opened his email with ladies. Hello, I'd like to negotiate over this because they were both women, and he, he referred to them, you know, in a formal fashion. Ladies, this is what I'd like to do. And he was informed. So, he was informed so, by the director of the search that that was uh, deeply uh, insulting and a microaggression, and they would be rescinding the offer for him to be their superintendent. I was about to ask. So what? That seems like a completely normal thing to do. Yep. For titling, addressing the people who were women. As ladies, in an email, he was informed that was insulting, that was over the line, that was a microaggression, and the fact you didn't know that means you can't be the superintendent of our school system. Someone who is probably quite good at his job. Yeah, uh, apparently beloved by all that have ever encountered him. You know, uh, someone who's had kids and and they've come through the school systems and he's been at every level and he's already serving as a superintendent elsewhere. You know, like he's at the pinnacle of his career and he just wants to, you know, give back to his local community where he lives before his career is over. Um, gave off every impression that he's truly a professional in the education realm. And he was, was denied a employment opportunity that they chose him for, for addressing women as ladies, which he apologized. And when he was told it was insulting, he apologized for it and said that, you know, I had no concept of that. I, 
Grew up in the 60s and 70s when it was quite correct to refer to ladies and gentlemen as a formal form of address. I was uh, completely unaware of any context that would have that where that would have changed. But I, I, uh, I apologize. I did do that and I did not know. And that wasn't enough. His apology didn't matter. And they still rescinded the offer. The apologies never matter, which is a problem for incentives. This came up a little bit last week, but I think there is a conservative failure mode that is just like, of, I am vaguely upset that society is changing that you, you want to avoid because society is going to change. Some of the changes are going to be good. Some of them are going to be bad, but there's a, a definite attitude of, I don't like that things are different. That isn't exactly helpful. Um, norms change. The difference is this is not 80% of people going, Hey, ladies, isn't polite anymore. We're going to, we're going to like enforce new norms of politeness. This is like 30% of people trying to bully the rest into compliance. Not even 30. Yeah. Like three. I'm being generous. <laughs> yeah. You're being way too generous. You're an order of magnitude too generous. It's like uh, I Jesse Signal put it best, in my opinion, when he said a Twitter mob should re- should affect you the same way if you're somebody where someone comes up to you and says, hey, there's a high school gymnasium in the middle of East Kansas that has filled the capacity with people who think you're dumb. It's really that's a shame. all it is. A couple hundred, you know. <laughs> it's really a shame that he died. <laughs> we violated Hippo. Do you listen to Block and Report it at all? They have no. a great bit about it. You should. I highly recommend it. You listen to his show and him and, and uh, Katie Herzog have a whole bit about how he's been spending time in Hippo jail because he was kicked off of Twitter because he violated Hippo and his cellmate is Pope Hat. Like, <laughs> it's a whole... It's a whole thing. Yeah, you would really like the show because they're very online and the show is about like very online journalism topics. So I probably would like the show, but I used to feel like I got most of the content by following them on Twitter and then he left Twitter. So he's just dead to me. I don't know why you do that. Now you don't exist anymore. It's it's a shame. But in, in order to please this entire extremely small amount of people uh we're being forced to radically change things that where maybe the change is bad maybe in fact this this gentleman the seasoned professional gentleman referring to his female colleagues as ladies is not actually a problem at all that it is a reflection of his slightly anachronistic but still very formal method of speaking Maybe that's all it is. And then, in fact, it should be interpreted as such. I still don't even know what the supposed aggression is, even if it's micro. What's what is wrong? Yeah. Like, the what is the rationale? Right. It's not like he called you girls. He called you ladies. It's an elevated form of woman. Was it assuming their gender? Is that what they're mad about? I feel like we kind of rode that wave. But he has met them. Like, that's what makes no sense to me. It's like, if he had met them. They probably they gave him their pronouns. They probably gave him pronouns, right? Like, I'm going to actually assume this guy knows that they both refer to themselves as women. Right? I think that's a fair assumption to make. 
that they presented themselves as women. They may have directly and specifically identified themselves as women and maybe even said my pronouns are X or have their pronouns present in their professional or uh, their social media, their professional lives. And their email this, signature. And this guy knew that they were women, that they they identified as such and therefore referred to, referred to them as ladies. Literally the formal version of women. It's the top hat version of women, Andrew. <laughs> what? <laughs> I don't understand. Uh, I just, just coasts. Not even once. But yet here we are, right? Ohio State, not on the post. Still has a, a $13.4 million DEI bureaucracy. It's just money flushed down the toilet for ex- what purpose exactly? You know, so that the, the largest public institution in Ohio can have really cringy seminars about uh, pronouns? What are we doing here? Is that really what we're going to spend? Like, who is looking? I, I just always, I guess, I default back to this naive, this naive concept that these places are run by adults. Adults with the same amount of sense that I possess that look at this and say... $13 million on this? You're all fired. <laughs> like, all of you are gone. What is this? This is like multiple research grants. Get the fuck out of here. You know? Like, but yet, yeah, every time I am I'm struck dumb by the fact that apparently this is not at all the case. I think the problem is that they have the same amount of sense as you. They just know that there are people responding to incentives, right? The incentives are uh, you have to pretend to care. You have to hire people so that you aren't the place that doesn't have a DEI bureaucrat. Uh, the, you know, if the student goes to file a complaint and there is no office, you're going to be, you're going to be the main character on the internet. And that's, $13.4 million is a pretty cheap insurance policy to make sure that you aren't the main character of the internet. But also, if you're that guy and you realize that being the main character of the internet doesn't matter, that its power vanishes immediately. Well, they have a little bit less sense than you. Because <laughs> they haven't got that far yet. Or maybe... I mean, th- these these fringe wackos remain the fringe wackos at these institutions. Like that, I guess that's the part that folks don't know like talk to a college student go talk to them about like what the college experience is like it's like it's mostly still the same as it was 20 years ago it's just that there's this lunatic fringe that has accumulated this power that they occasionally try to weaponize against people and it's really annoying he's like getting rid of this is still very much in that easy if we're we're, for a lot of institutions maybe not harvard maybe not yale maybe not stanford maybe those places will be going through a more difficult rebirth when the time comes. But Ohio State, this would be very easy to solve. Well, the path of least resistance is just ignore them. Right, which is, I'm sure, what happens a lot of the time. You have a bunch of well-paid bureaucrats to do things for with the people who want to do them, and they leave everyone else alone. And that's like the detente you have in the institution. Yeah, they have like their event with some trifolds and... They all stand in front of it and say, this is what we're doing to make sure that people feel welcomed on campus. 
and they have their cringe. And as long as they don't go and fuck up the engineering school, then no one cares. <laughs> like, just keep it out of where it matters. <laughs> like, do your weird shit in your weird departments, I guess. That does leave us back at those. Like, what do? Like, what do you do about this? Ohio has red governance. Step to stern. Like it's super majorities in the, in, in the state house and every statewide office is held by team red. They have to, they have to ask, ask permission of no one to do things. No one at all. Like at what point do you just be like, guys, you're going to have to get rid of this. You're going to have to force Ohio state to fire all the DEI bureaucrats. They're not going to do it. This is a broader problem faced by the right. where like, most of the right's problems are that they don't have cultural power and electing Republicans doesn't actually change that. I mean, but when you have all of the political power, just use it. You don't need cultural power to fire all the DEI bureaucrats at Ohio state. You just, you can just pass the laws necessary to make that happen. It's like, all right, here's what's going to happen. How much is that place? 14 million. You're not getting this 14 million. We're not giving it to you until you get rid of them. Or maybe we withhold 20 million or 25 million or 50 million. I don't know how much, what number do I have to name before you go and do your fucking job? (laughs) Like, just tell me what it is. There's some non-zero amount of cultural curation that is not money lit on fire. You know, institutions have a culture, colleges have a particular culture that is unique to that institution. So if your argument is your cultural curators must have certain viewpoints that we approve, you're going to have real serious First Amendment problems real fast. You're not talking about opinions. You're talking about a useless piece of the bureaucracy. You're not saying don't pursue Title IX complaints. You're not saying don't fulfill your obligations under law, both in the United States and the state of Ohio and the city of Columbus. You can and should continue to do those things. This whole thing you build here, that's some useless bureaucracy we've decided you have to dispose of. And you will. Okay, they they fire them and they rehire them as community coordinators. I mean, then that's when you fire the president of the college. <laughs> then you just get put someone in, then it'll just do what you tell them to. I mean, like at that, at that point, if they're going to get cute and and try and just thumb your nose at it, then you just replace the guy at the top until you just put in someone who's going to do what you want. That seems hard, especially given just the raw correlation of like people with bachelor's degrees are much more likely to vote Democratic. So yeah, it's like, why you offer huge student loan uh, forgiveness to secure them as a uh, as a voting class on your behalf. It's why you create make work DEI positions so that they can find six figure employment doing absolutely nothing of value to an institution, if not actively disintegrating its value with each moment, each passing moment of their existence. And so much of that is also linked to what I wanted to talk about, which is student loans and the secret scam of public service loan forgiveness. Are you familiar with the, with the public service loan forgiveness program? I am. It's for like teachers and people who join the peace corps. Like you don't want firefighters. You're like, all right, well you're trapped under student debt, so you can't do this. 
So you can't be a firefighter anymore. So like if you do jobs that nobly serve the public or are a DEI administrator, you get your student loan forgiven. <laughs> it's like uh, very clever, right? Like the, the purpose for the student public service student loan forgiveness program predates the current amount of student loan debt in the economy. It is something that was conceived of to incentivize people with elevated educations to work in low paying public service. And that if you chose to sacrifice economic value for what your education could allow you to attain so that you could be a teacher or some form of public servant, uh, then your benefit would be, well, you know, this 30 year, 25 year term you had on your student loan. Well, guess what? After 10 years, it's all gone. It's all forgiven. And you can move forward now with additional economic value that you would have had if you had been able to pay off the loan. This is really important in law because lawyers have a lot of debt and you want, you know, the good lawyers can make a lot of money in the private sector. Um, but if you want to have some competent public defenders, you can't pay back your student loans on a public defender salary. So you just have like that has that's necessary as an incentive for any competent lawyer to ever be a public defender. And it's not enough to make it make economic sense, but it makes it so that the people who as a passion feel like they want to be a public defender so they don't get destroyed by their public, uh, by their student loans for their altruism. Correct. And also doctors, right? Like same sort of circumstance where, uh, doctors can be extraordinarily well paid to, to work in a uh, private enterprise and will have to accept a much reduced salary to work in, uh, for a nonprofit or some sort of, um, you know, public charity that's providing health care to disadvantaged communities and that sort of thing. So you want you want a doctor with you know all of the uh, accompanying accreditation and training to be willing to take a fraction of what they could make if they were working for a major health organization. So they work for you. No problem with this in concept, and that you wish it was conceived. But of course, what happened is that. We went from this being primarily a vehicle by which educated professionals can see forgiveness for significant loans and uh, for in exchange for offering the professional services in a public setting for a low compensation, a process that serves essentially everyone. It serves the institution. It serves the government. It serves the loan holder. And it serves the public, generally speaking, because now they have access to the service. And... Now overlay that with 10 times as many people with useless bachelor degrees that have been hideously overcharged for their education, or at least they've overpaid for their education and trying to find some, some dark corner of nonprofit slash public life that they can hide in for 10 years to escape it. Not providing value, not giving something to the public but in fact, perhaps making it worse, but maintaining that employment long enough to say, forgive six figures worth of debt, which a lot of these people have. And he, we are now starting to see the first uh, waves of millennial college graduates with enormous student debt, watch it all be obliterated by the fact that they have glommed on long enough to see it go. And 
this is after three years of not having to pay them at all, which is an entirely different enraging circumstance to the two of us. So watching this, this, the, you know, this, the scam was basically pulled off right in front of us. You know, like this, the, the, they, they've been doing this the whole time and we're only now noticing because the early adopters are the ones seeing the rewards. But suddenly that chart you showed me of 160 DEI people at Ohio state makes a lot of sense. And a lot of like program coordinators making 60 grand in there where really the scam is I'm getting out from under what I owe, not I'm doing something here that's worthwhile in any way. It's always the connected people that win. You can legislate with the best of intentions, but the people with connections and parents that are also elites and know how to game the system, they're always going to be the ones that come out ahead. Like nobody, nobody was telling me, Hey, if you just, if you just get this job, then in 10 years, you won't have any student debt. Nobody that I knew knew that that was the play, but there were people who did know that that was the play. And this is part of my overall skepticism of everything that government does. And it's the, the, the people that win are very rarely the people that you legislate intending to win. Turns out human beings are really good at finding exploits in the system. We've said it before. Mark Rosewater points it out all the time. And the moment there became some inkling of this exploit in the student loan system that, well, if they could just find their way into public employment. And at first, it's really a lot of teachers and people who sort of overeducated themselves and then used that as their platform. Um, but you know, these DEI bureaucrats, what we were saying, this is something that's come on the last five or six years. These people are kind of halfway through the tenure they need to really pay off these loans. And they're, you know, setting up the next generation of people who get to to get to enjoy the grift as well. Wait, wait. They're halfway through the tenure they need? That was good. And I didn't even intend for it to be as good as it was. I didn't even... I heard you say that. I knew the word, but I heard them both at the same time. I'm like, aha, we got it. So part of the uh, the other reason here, of course, is that the current Trump, the the Biden administration rather purposely made it so much easier to make use of this program, whereas before the rules were much more strict. You know, in terms of you have to record your service, expert, you know, extemporaneously. You know, you have to really show documented evidence you did this and created some bureaucratic hurdles that you have to jump through, whereas the Biden administration has tried to make it as easy as possible. So you have a combination of loosening of the rules and increasing the opportunity to to take advantage. I mean, this is going to be six figure paydays are going to hit these people's taxes Every year for like the next 10 years running, you're going to start to see stories about it. I guarantee you of some like, oh, I'm a lowly DEI bureaucrat. And then suddenly I finally got my long awaited relief from my student loans after 10 years of service. 
but oh, I didn't know that I was going to have to pay taxes on it. Like I got a hundred and extra hundred and ten thousand dollars in income that year, which you do. It's part of the law. And uh, then there's will be a push. That'll be the next thing, a push to to fix this loophole. It'll be seen as a loophole, a loophole by which these poor people who worked so hard to have all their student loans repaid now suddenly have to pay huge tax bills, close this work. So all of our teachers, so our teachers don't suddenly have to pay $10,000 tax bills. Guarantee it. Guarantee it. Set your fucking watch. I have no doubt that this will come to pass just as you say it's 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 a classic bootlegger and baptist program where you can like hide behind these nice baptists that want to ban alcohol because uh they they just think it's bad and that the real people that want alcohol banned are the bootleggers i just don't for less noble reasons this is more of a, a a black pill discussion that I think we typically have simply because we're talking about something that we have noticed and that concern genuinely concerns us. It is this huge um, social economic uh, leak, as we like to say, a leak in, in, in our game. And we have no real solutions on how to fix it because we have resigned to the idea that even when you have the quote right people end quote in charge, they seem completely incapable of wielding power in a way that would effectively deal with the problem. Well, this is, this is very classical client service. And in a way that it, that's, you know, I, it is a little black bill for this cast, but some amount of, we're going to reward the people that voted for us is as old as Athenian democracy. They've gotten better at it since the teapot dome era, but you know, we come, we, we try to take a historical perspective on this podcast. It's maybe trending worse in that we're more explicit about, Hey, write us checks because you're, were your constituency in a way that was gauche maybe 30 years ago, but it wasn't a hundred years ago. This, this comes in cycles. It, it, it'll, it, this too shall pass. It, it, it's only a passing thing. This shadow, <laughs> um, there'll be, it'll, as you often say, it'll get worse and then it'll get better when people get mad enough that, there are too many people's hands reaching into their pocket and someone gets elected to, to fix it with a, like a super majority and could say, all right, enough. We're just, we're just, we're going to have civil service reform 2.0, but for, you know, all these, all these petty grifts. I certainly hope you're right. Uh, or I guess I do ultimately completely agree that you're right. I guess my concern is what is the level of failure that will be required before finally we see a correction on not just these relatively small issues, but a lot of the bigger ones that we've kind of gone over the last two weeks. Lots of big 
politically charged problems to deal with on the table right now. You know, there's just a lot in front of us. And it would be one thing if I felt like we had reasonable leadership at the top that could constructively confront these problems. But what we have is an administration that is pretty incompetent, but ideologically captured, except for some small sense that they occasionally kind of lurches out from some piece of it like it was like an accident. Like I, it, what comes to mind uh, recently is like Biden chose to sign a bipartisan bill that was going to prevent DC from making uh, carjacking uh, not a serious crime anymore because yeah, like that they're like, yeah, we're going to not let you do that. Like, we're not going to let you go down the path of Seattle and, and New York and that sort of thing here in Washington, DC. Cause there's a lot of congressmen getting like punched and stabbed right now. And we're not cool with that. And so like every once in a while, some, like some little, some little good decision is made somewhere. Uh, but for the most part, they, they, they're, they're struggling to do anything that makes sense. And quite often abscond from sense. Well, we talked about last week, we talked about what, how much the 2024 Republican primary is going to tell us about the few, the next decade of the Republican party. Who, who are they and who do they want to be? Uh, the same thing is going to happen with the Democrats that uh, I, I listened to Barry Weiss's interview with Eric Adams, where he talked about how oh, I, I have all, more in the rhetoric than the policy, but I've always liked uh, where Eric Adams came from, where he was a former police chief. So he knows that sometimes you just have to show up with force. Yeah. He's also, captain, but yeah. But he also was beat up by cops as a teenager because it was the 60s and that was just common. So he's he's kind of rhetorically, at least he walked a a nice tightrope. He he outlined how he thinks it's a pretty small faction in the Democratic Party that's uh, that wants to abolish police. It is a relatively small faction. It's, you know, it, it has not has not survived first contact with the enemy, as we say often. But right now, the Democratic Party is just in such stasis because everyone knows Kamala Harris is unplayable. Everyone knows <laughs> uh, Biden is not long for the political world. He's, Maybe not even the material world. If we're being, being I was I was just going to imply it, but you know it's also true. He's he's an old man and he looks older every day. Yeah there there are there are ninety five year olds that are on their bikes every day and look like they they've got that serious old man strength, and Biden is not going to be one of them. Biden is at a level of fragility where the job could literally kill him. It's the most stressful job. Yeah. Like he could be faced with a real awful circumstance and he has a spike in stress related hormones and blood pressure and then dies of a stroke just because he's in his eighties and that can happen. In 2020, 
we watched the debate where would your plan for universal health care extend to undocumented immigrants? And every hand went up. And the person whose hand went up the slowest won the primary. So when you we have an open primary, it's very clarifying of where people are. I haven't you know, so much of 2020 was about Trump, even on the Democratic side. But once he's a little more out of the picture, you can actually have an Eric Adams say, hey, we don't want to defund the police. We, we need order in New York City. I mean, they're already saying that, you know, like that, that battle actually got won just because it was such it was one that couldn't help but be one. Sure. Every, everywhere you look defund the police has dead ass lost flat on its face every time eric adams victory india walton losing in buffalo to a write-in uh minneapolis literally said no to a defund the police uh ballot initiative um you, you've got a prosecutor in seattle was replaced with a republican uh, the mayor of San Francisco is asking for for federal assist policing assistance. Uh, like you you just go down the list. Like all you see are people admitting the shit did not work everywhere it's been tried. Like Seattle and Portland are going to the same problem where they're like we we just we can't we've got to go get outside help. We need state troopers. We need county sheriffs. Like we need to reestablish order in our urban centers because we have lost control. So the failures are self-evident and being lived in by a, a whole bunch of people right now. Uh, the The question is, will – on the Republican side, you see someone emerge that actually can credibly claim a leadership position or not? Like Donald Trump is steadfastly hated by 60% of this country. Now, some of those people, some small percentage of that 60% will still vote for him because they just hate Democrats more, but not enough. Some of them on this podcast. Some of them on this podcast. <laughs> uh, but that's not enough, as we've no. seen twice in a row. So if is is the is the right willing to be serious and discard the toy? and go with a man's tools or are they going to become infantile and return back to daddy Trump? I mean, uh, the, the, it's been clear for, you know, what was our, our third episode? Just be normal. Yeah. The first party that can just be normal is going to be experience unparalleled success. Yeah. The first one who says, why don't we all just chill the fuck out, maintain order and leave each other alone is going to, they're going to pick him up and take him down the central Avenue in a ticker take parade. Given the, the scale of realignment that we're experiencing, as you talked about how, you know, Portland, Hey, we need order in our cities. The ideologues that are pushing this are not the ones feeling the disorder. So we're going to continue to experience this realignment. I'm pretty sure in the next 15 years, we'll have a true electoral landslide, like not quite Reagan style, but because that just can't happen anymore, but someone will just crush. 
And that's all. That's always been how populist moments go. I felt like something I said on Twitter was, you know, if there's going to be populism, at least why can't someone give a good speech? Where's my cross <laughs> of gold? I I honestly think that if Ron DeSantis does take down the nomination, it won't be a Reagan style uh, sweep, but it wouldn't surprise me if it was an Obama style victory. Yeah. You know, like if he just like takes down a bunch of blue areas quite unexpectedly and it's not close, you know, like like Miami Dade County. Yeah. Like uh, he wins Maine and Minnesota and Wisconsin and Pennsylvania, you know, and that sort of thing, like in in Virginia, (laughs) you know, like there's a lot of red on the map and like the blue areas are still blue, but. A lot of it wasn't because everyone knew what they had to do and to take old Joe back, <laughs> back to the, to the, to the house where you can take a nap and, and put a real adult in charge. I guess I'm not, I'm, I'm kind of blackpilled until I see what happens with the, with the primary. I, I'm ready to be hopeful. I'm ready to take the white pill, but I need Ron to come out and demonstrate that he's really going to do this. And that he's going to go the distance one way or another. And that there's a shot before I'm going to be too hopeful about anything. When I look at the past 10 years, I'm a pessimist. When I look at the past 50, I'm pretty optimistic. 70s were wild. Can you imagine like daily political bombings in the era of Twitter? So much nihilism in that era, too. You can see it in all of its media. You know, it was reflected in the mood. There wasn't a Twitter, but everyone was still feeling it. Mm-hmm. Everyone knew things were just so much worse than they were. And it's like, why the fuck aren't people figuring this shit out? What the fuck is the problem? And you're starting to get that vibe more and more. Um, and it's really just the internet people who are the ones that still act like there isn't an issue. Meanwhile, Biden's uh, approval rating is like at 40%. You never know that, it from the coverage. Yeah, like no one's talking about it at all because it's not a relevant metric at the moment because it's not an election to be held. But yeah, his his approval rating is almost into the 30s. No one's buying what this man is selling anymore. So maybe there is hope in that. We we hope as well to get your ears again next week. Thanks for listening to our rambly little podcast here. See you then. <laughs>